more clearly, more dearly? Would you lead us to live out our emotions and our lives in a way that reflects the goodness of our God towards us? We thank you, Lord, for your grace. Would you pour it upon us right now and here? In Jesus' name, amen. So, Psalm 5. And here's the question that this psalm leads us to. Where do you go when the world is crushing you? Where do you go when the whole world seems against you? When, when people are against you, when people are lying about you, when people, when, or when, when just your inner turmoil or outer turmoil is just destroying you, where do you go? And, and Psalm 5 is a psalm for a hard day of struggle. It's one of those psalms that really reminds us that the Bible, uh, the Bible, uh, and perhaps especially the psalms, aren't some distant textbook written into a vacuum. These are songs written by real people with real struggles, inspired by the Holy Spirit to carry those struggles to their God. That's why it is the anatomy of the soul, this book of the Bible, because there, there we see the range of human experience and emotion explored for the life of God's people. Uh, David, the author, in this psalm, he's, he's in some ways, he's putting words to the unspeakable. Literally, that's kind of what he's doing, because he opens the psalm with this request. He says, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry. This gives us an insight into the day that he's having or that he's reflecting on when he writes this. You know? Although he's literally using words to write this psalm, obviously, this is written for those who face something that causes them to groan and to cry. That word, that word groaning, when we think of groaning, we think of it's a negative connotation, right? We think of oh, grumbling, essentially. But it doesn't mean that whining complaint that we're used to that meaning. Uh, as one commentator said, it is the inarticulate murmuring of the agonised soul. The soft, broken whisper of despair when words just won't come to you. when you don't know what to pray. It's, it's when the prayer makes it as far as your heart but doesn't get as far as your lips. Um, Charles Spurgeon said that words are not the essence of prayer. They are the garments of it. And that's what we're talking about here. When, when there is the essence but there's no ability within us to clothe the prayer in words. And we have to say from the outset, there's, there's something this tells us. The very presence of this broken plea in the book of Psalms, and it's not alone, by the way. Uh, the largest category of the Psalms, I believe, is the laments. Uh, and, and the presence of this kind of a broken plea psalm tells us something about what it means to be a believer in Jesus. Sometimes we're broken. Sometimes we still get shattered. 
Even though we are God's children, even though we are blessed and we are saved, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing of the heavenly places, as Paul says, even so, sometimes we reach a point where we, we feel we have been crushed. We have been so hated, so opposed, that we are just wordlessly despairing. Or we feel we have been personally, that we have personally failed to such an extent, so dismally and so repeatedly that we don't know what to say. Or we just feel so crushed by our circumstances, by the, by the turmoil of life that is milling around inside of us that we just don't know what to do with, or by the turmoil of life around us that is coming in against us, that we just, we just don't know how to climb back out of the hole. In short, we feel broken. That happens. Even to those who have experienced redemption in Jesus, that happens. Um, I remember a season in my life. You know, I could actually point you to a few seasons in my life, but I'm just, I just picked one out of the hat. You know? um, I remember a season in, in my life when, when we... Um, it was 2010, um, and I just moved state and city, or town, I'd moved to Alice Springs, uh, and, and you know, I, was, I was there alone, I didn't know a single person in the town to add a little bit of extra kind of straw on the camel's back. Uh, my granny died around about the same time that I moved, and so I, you know, I, I was grieving and I was leaving, and, and I was starting something new, that, and I hated the job, it actually went really badly, to be completely honest. Um, and, 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 I remember, I just, I didn't have words to put to the sorrow and the loneliness that I was feeling. Now, I know that there are people here who've experienced things that will blow that out of the water, and, and I'm not trying to demean that in any way. Um, but, but, you know, where there weren't words, there were certainly tears. You know, that's, that's a place where we can be. You know, it's okay for that to happen in the life of a believer, and it's okay for us to bring that to God. God doesn't look at you and go, you failed when that happens. In fact, that's the place that this psalm was written for. This psalm is written for the person who has had a long day on the back of a long month, on the back of some long years. You know, you've on that day that you've just experienced that one straw that broke the camel's back. It's written for the person who's experiencing the devastation of loss and grief. Doesn't know where to turn. You know, I wonder, have you had those days? I, I know for, for ironclad fact that some of you have, and, and I suspect that all of us could look on a season in our lives and, and point at it and say, yeah, that was... That was that was it, or that was one of the times when I experienced that. You know, maybe, maybe for you, you're in that season right now. Maybe for you, you can look in the rear view and you can see it back there. Maybe for you, it's coming around the corner. Either way, this, this psalm speaks to all of us. Whatever it be, everyone will face these seasons of struggling and brokenness at times. And Psalm 5 is written to give our hearts hope when we can't see hope in the immediate situation. And the way it does that is it calls on us to remember. To remember who God is and what our God does. 
L last week, um, we observed that all of the Psalms are messianic, right? They all are either to be sung to Jesus or they are all songs that could be sung by Jesus, and some of them are both. Uh, this, one, this one, again, like last week, somewhat captures both of those things, but to a large extent, it is primarily one which we sing to Jesus. Because in, into the most broken moments of our lives, this psalm speaks three realities, and these three realities are truths which we find most clearly expressed, most truly applied into our lives as we, as we see them in the context of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And before we talk about what those three things are, there's one more thing I need to introduce you to. And this might be a bit of a turn-off. Hebrew poetry structure. Yay, everyone. Um, no, this is important. Um, I'll explain why this is important, but, but structurally, this psalm is what we call a chiasm. Chiasm, spelled C-H-I-A-S-M. Um, let me explain what that means. Um, because this is a structure which comes up again and again and again and again and again in the book of Psalms and actually across the whole Bible. We see chiasm. And it's, it's a thing that is relatively foreign to us but was completely normal to the original authors and readers. So if we want to understand the Bible on its terms, and we want to understand the Bible, don't we, church? If we want to understand it on its own terms, very often we need to understand chiasm. So here, here we go. It's really simple. Um, in our music and in our poetry, our normal structure, right, of, of, of storytelling and of writing and of singing is that we're used to the big idea and the big point being at the end, right? That we, we sing a song and it crescendos. It has a finale, literally meaning the end, where we put the big thing because that's where we associate that. But in Hebrew song and in Hebrew poetry and writing, that's often not the case. Instead, the big point, the big idea, the central idea is central. It's right in the middle. It's, a, it's like there's a mountain, right? And on either side, you have matching ideas at different altitudes. So at the beginning and at the end of the psalm, you know, suppose you have a, a, a song with five parts, let's say, right? And at the beginning and the end, the first and the last bits, they match each other. And the second and the third bits, they match each other and they connect with each other. And in the middle, you have the high point of the mountain, the peak. The thing that the psalmist, that the Holy Spirit most wants us to take out of this. Um, I take the time to explain that because Psalm 5 is a chiasm. And we need to see what David sees as being central on those days of struggle. So the first thing that David remembers when he's struck with struggles is he remembers, or he calls us to, remember who God is towards you. This is such an important reality. When, when we hit days when everything is too much, here is a good first truth to remind you of. God is your king and God is your refuge. You have a place to run which cannot be taken away from you. you know, in the first part of the, the chiasm, verses 
um, 1 to 3. So, so this is verse 1 to 3 and verses 11 and 12, okay? Is our, is our first, the, the base of the mountain. Um, base camp, let's call it. At, at the beginning of the psalm, as David sings his cries and his groanings to God, he says, give attention to the sound of my cry, my king and my God. For to you do I pray. His basis for what he's praying, his, his first remembrance that, in, that, that, that pushes him into continuing is that God is his God and his king. God is king. He is sovereign over all of creation. Lord over every detail of your life and of everything that happens around you. But not just king. That's true for everyone. He is your If you are a person who has put their trust in Jesus Christ, then you can know with certainty that the sovereign of the universe has pointed you out and he says, this one is mine. This one I love. Not just this one is mine. This one is mine and I intend good for this one. And my plans are never thwarted. More than that, as we come to the end of the psalm, to the other boot camp, at the, uh, base camp at the other end of the chiasm, and find the uh, corresponding section there, we find that God is not just king to those who trust in Jesus, he is refuge, so we, there can be rejoicing even in the midst of the struggles. David prays, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. And spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Now, there is still a reason this comes at the end of the psalm. He's not saying, well, gosh, you need to go and experience joy on that day of struggle. There, there can be days of tears. But God is your king and your refuge. Here's what refuge doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that everything will always go exactly as you planned and you'll never have a hard day. Obviously, right? Like this is the groaning psalm. That would be a bit of a contradiction, right? Here's, here's what it does mean that God is your refuge and your king. In Jesus, you've received a safe place and an abiding treasure that cannot be taken away from you. And so you can take refuge when the world collapses around you. Let me explain. It, everyone looks for security somewhere, right? This is a universal fact of human life. Um, from, from the moment a person is born and they look for security in their mum, right? We, we look for security in money. Money can give you a sense of security. Um, a good house can give you a sense of security. A, a, an orderly life can give you a sense of security. Feeling like the work that I do is really meaningful can give someone a really strong sense of security. Having, having that right person in your life can give someone a really strong sense of security and so on and so forth, right? We could just get going on that all day. You may be comforted to know we won't. Another way of saying those things, rather than talking about security, is to say that in money, in a house, in order, in meaningful work, in a special relationship, in all these things we can find refuge. 
They can be things that we run to when things get hard. But here's the thing, those refuges can be taken away. They can collapse. What happens when the economy tanks? There's a conversation people are having at the moment, right? What happens to your refuge in your money when the economy falls through and your money's not worth the paper it's printed on? Plastic it's printed on. What happens when the house burns down? Or when it's just right, straight out disappointing and keeps breaking and you still haven't got around to in installing the new fence and, and, and sanding back the, the woodwork, right? And doing the new paint job. What happens when life gets hectic and the order that you've been taking refuge in becomes chaos and you just can't keep up with it? What happens when you lose the job that's given you so much meaning in your life? What happens when the important relationship ends? What happens when the person dies? If those things are your refuge, your refuge is in ruins, right? But in God, we have gained something that cannot be lost. We have gained an eternal security. We've gained him in us and us in him. And he will not leave us or forsake us, he has promised. If you've trusted in Jesus, he has promised. Peter says that uh, through the resurrection of Jesus, we've gained an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. It can't be stolen. So even on your worst days, you can know that your king is still reigning and your refuge stands secure. It cannot be taken away. Your hope won't be crushed. So first, remember. Remember who God is towards you. God is your king and God is your refuge. Second, remember, and this is, this is our, our second step on the chiasm mountain, right? Remember that God is just, so he will make it right. Second part of the, the chiasm, verses 4 to 6 and verses 9 and 10. These words in the psalm might make us squirm a bit, right? This is, this is the first time in the psalm, Psalm 5, that this kind of language pops up. It com comes up a bit. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. Actually, this is really important what we see here. Shouldn't just take it on its own, but it's really important. God can't be a good God and just let injustice go unpunished. If he just swept it under the rug, he wouldn't be good. You know, just, just, just for a moment, forget you're talking about God and pretend we're talking about just a, a district court judge, right? And, and, and someone has, has pranged into your car intentionally, right? Because they hate you. And the court judge says, ah, it's all right. Good judge? No. No. That's where we're appealing to a higher judge, Right? God can't be good if he is not just. He would be corrupt if he swept it under the rug. This is also where we get some specific insight into what might have actually been happening for David on this day. Um, and 
although like we've said, this psalm speaks to all kinds of days of struggle, I think this one can particularly be relatable to a lot of people. People were lying about him. People were gossiping about him. He's being opposed. And although they speak nicely to his face, and if you want to know that, just go and read those two sections of the Chiasm and see how many times he talks about how people speak, how many different words he uses for that. Take my word for it for now. I think a lot of us have been there. I always say our area is such a strong It has such a strong gossip culture. That's a thing where we live. Uh, If you haven't run into this, um, consider looking. Uh, It's it's the norm that people spread half-truths that harm people and don't see the power of their own uh, own words on your peninsula. That's, That's standard here. Church, I'd be remiss if I didn't say this. Uh, that's an opportunity for us to be the glorious salt and light countercultural people of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if ever there was one. If the rumour and the gossip would end with us, if it would run into us and it dies on the ground. If we would accept that to spread something that we've heard but that we don't know is slander and that slander is one of the things that the Bible explicitly says Jesus Christ died to save us from. If that was us, we would be such a beautiful picture of Jesus in a broken community, wouldn't we? But David reminds himself of this second reality about God. God is just. He'll make things right. Gossip and gossips won't be reality forever. That's going to end. God is not just king and refuge. He is judge. And one day, he will do away with the brokenness. He will do away with the sin. One day, he will judge this world justly and remove the unjust and the grief of the lies and the slander and the gossip will end. Do you ever long for a world without sin? Do you ever ever find yourself on those days when you're broken, when you're struggling, just think to yourself, gosh, if people just weren't the way that they were, I wouldn't have to deal with this rubbish. I wouldn't be in this mess if it wasn't for how people are. Here's a little, little talked about reality about Jesus. He will return, and when he does, he will judge justly. He will remove sin and sinners. The Apostles' Creed, now it's funny, we we sing a version of the Apostles' Creed that that Hillsong put together, and and it was probably just for musical purposes, but they dropped this line uh, when, when they did their version of the Creed. The Apostles' Creed says, He will come again to judge the living and the dead. There is not one injustice which will not be made right. And you know, one implication of that is that we can trust that God will make it right. God will punish sin, so we don't have to. Our job is not to condemn and to oppose. Certainly not to let people sit in it and die in sin. That's what I'm saying. But our job is not to be 
punishing sin. Our job is to call sinners into redemption, primarily, as the people of God. But this does create a tad of attention, doesn't it? I mean, take it this way. In Psalm, so our, our Psalm today is written by David, King David. Uh, Psalm 143, also written by David, says this. Enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. See what he's saying there, right? Like, David had to acknowledge if God is the just judge, then great, he's going to deal with sinners and he's going to judge them justly. And oh no, I'm one of them. But the tension comes undone when we reach the top of the mountain. As we see the reality at the heart of the chiasm, verses 7 and 8. David has reminded himself, let's, let's rehash here, God is my king and God is your refuge. God is just and so he'll make it right. But now he reaches the main thing, the main reminder that he's bringing to mind on the hard day. The thing we always need to hear. God is gracious towards you. You see, David doesn't say, you judge the wicked, but I am not the wicked. And so you're not going to judge me. I'm perfect. Shazam, David. No, he says, you judge the evil, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. This is such a humbling and comforting reality on the hard days. The abundant love of God is towards you and leads you to enter in with him. Nothing in you does that. It's his abundant love that leads you in. You see, our gut instinct is to look at the world and to see good people and bad people. Right? And, and usually, I don't want to make anyone too uncomfortable. Ah, yes, I do. Um, Usually, our definition of a bad person is, is below me. And usually, my definition of a good pe person is me plus. Maybe we give ourselves a buffer of one person on that side, so we're like, I don't want to be a hypocrite. But, but it's just not right. Really, our assessment of the world doesn't matter. You're not king, remember? God's king. And God's assessment of the world matters. God is judge. A right view of humanity sees it, it does see it divided in two, but not like that. A right view of humanity sees bad people who reject grace and bad people who receive grace. It sees the rebellious and the repentant. I didn't mean to point to you guys over here as the rebellious just now. This isn't sweeping it under the rug. This is God having paid the price for our punishment himself. The king, the refuge, the just judge came down himself and entered into our broken world as one of us. And he carried the weight of our sin, the weight of our brokenness, 
David was certainly looking at the physical temple, probably, when he says, when he says, I will enter into your house, but in Jesus we have an even greater entering. Hebrews 10 says that because of the blood of Jesus, we have confidence to enter into the holy places. We are brought into the presence of God. Not by entering a church building, not by going to a special place, but by being loved by God and brought into Christ through saving faith. We daily live in the presence, in the holy presence of God. Indeed, right now, he comes and he lives in in us. And a day is coming when we will see him face to face. And ours will be the unsullied joy. And it is all by grace. It's all through the abundance of his steadfast love, his his covenant faithfulness to his people. It is all through the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're not just given once-off grace to enter in. (coughs) David prays in line with God's will. He says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness. God gives grace to enter in, and, and right here and now, God gives grace to carry on through Jesus, not through you, not through your situation, not through the horrible things that you're facing, but through the fact that Jesus loves you and he is with you and he's pouring his spirit into you. He gives grace to carry on. Church, when you struggle, and we do struggle, don't we? Remember these realities. You have a king who is sovereign over all and who is a refuge for you. You have a God who is a judge, who will do away with wrong, who will make it right. You have have a God, the depths of whose heart towards you is not begrudging, it's not hateful, it's not disappointed, it's love. despair need not win. There is a light coming for you which will never be extinguished forever. Would you pray with me? Lord, we I just want to come before you and acknowledge that we are a people with struggles and a people with sorrows. We're a people who have hard days, and and at times, many of us have felt that that's something we should cover and hide. That we should pretend it's all right. But Lord, help us to be a people who genuinely come to you with those things, and who come to one another with them who experience the grace of the gospel. Help us to be a people who are able to be in our groaning, but to find hope there. Make us a people, Lord, who know on the days when it's all broken and busted that you are our refuge and our king. Help us, Lord, 
to fight the devil's ploy, which is to stop us from running to you. Help us to run to you and find peace in you. On the days of tears, help us, Lord, to pray. Help us, Lord, to go to your word. Help us, Lord, to go to brothers and sisters who can speak your truth to us. Thank you, God, that you're just. Thank you that the way that this world is right now is not how it will be. That there is a new world coming, a perfect place with no sin and sorrow and and sickness, with no death. And thank you, Lord, for your grace. Let it wash over us now. Let us remember your grace in Jesus Christ who died for us. Who went to the cross for us and carried my shame and my sin. Thank you that your abundant, steadfast love is always towards us. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is going through that season of struggle right now that you would be ministering your grace to them. That they would know your love for them. They would find refuge in you. I pray for anyone who has not found the refuge that is in Christ Jesus. Who has perhaps sat in church their whole life and just thought it was a case of listening to the sermon and obeying the rules and has never realised that no, it is coming to know the grace of God towards me, the love of God, his abundant love towards me and, and knowing him and trusting him, and giving my life to him. I pray for that person, Lord, because they need you more than they need bread on the table, more than they need air in their lungs. I pray that you would bring your grace into their life now, that they would trust in you now. Pray it all in the beautiful, mighty name of Jesus. Amen.